I have an announcement to make. Um, I'm actually um, the overlord of the galaxy of Og. <laughs> that you call the Milky Way. I have come to rule over all human beings. In a few seconds, my flagship will arrive, hover over this place. There will be a bright light and I will be taken up to rule over all of you. Just nine, eight, seven, six, five, you ready? Three, two, one. Ah. Perhaps you have to reassess what I just said then. In fact, you knew that. If, if someone makes a monumental claim like that, then, you know, rightly, we will just uh, um, uh, think we're having a laugh or we will be ringing up the um, secure ward of Littlemore Mental Hospital and asking them to come down. I hope no one here was, was doing that. that. That is just how we react to extraordinary, grandiose claims like that. But what about if the spaceship did arrive? Then we would have to review all of our understanding of reality. So it is with Jesus. You see, Jesus came to uh, um, arrive and he was making the most monumental claims possible. He claimed that he was God made man. He claimed that he was bringing the final definitive um, message um, uh, from God to us. That he was, more than that, that he was bringing salvation itself. He claimed that uh, uh, when he died, it would be a sacrificial death paying for our sins. In fact, because he was God, it would be God paying the penalty for our sins so that we could be eternal eternally forgiven. And, of course, it's perfectly reasonable that such people should respond with complete incredulity. Who wouldn't? You know, we, 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 we see that kind of thing in the, in the Gospels. We see people scoffing and having a good laugh. We, we, we see the James Docks of this world who um, um, like to shout out to make fun of this bloke. Yeah? They do. We see some people asking him questions to try and expose that he's a charlatan. And um, uh, there are always credulous people around who will follow um, uh, people like that. And um, uh, uh, when such people uh, start to get a gathering, actually the authorities sometimes start to get a little bit worried. What are these? What is this radical going to do? So um, uh, today we don't crucify people like the Romans did, but we certainly kettle crowds. We certainly uh, monitor suspicious persons, and a few people we indefinitely detain. Authorities always do that with wild radicals making wild claims. What happened in the life of Jesus? was not a particular surprise. 
What was a surprise was that suddenly, actually, something happened which made people reassess. Rumours started getting out that Jesus had risen from the dead, just as he said he would. And that made everyone reevaluate their understanding of the whole world. At least if it was true, it did. So you see, the resurrection of Jesus is massively, massively important for Christians. If Jesus really rose from the dead, it changes everything. It says, for instance, that Jesus is absolutely unique. No other person in all of history has even claimed to be resurrected. It validates all of those teachings of uh, Jesus that he had made. Not only his wonderful morals, but his claim to be the Son of God. His claim that he was dying on the cross for our sins. Just as if a spaceship had uh, turned up uh, just a couple of minutes ago, you would have had to have rethought whether I was actually telling a joke at the beginning of my talk. So, the resurrection of Jesus, if it is true, changes our assessment of Jesus. And it changes our assessment of ourselves and our lives as well. Because Jesus made it very plain that he, as a man, rising from the dead, was, the, was as the Bible puts it, the firstborn amongst many brothers. He, because he could rise from the dead, one day he would raise all his people from the dead. In fact, all people to face judgment. Some to be eternally separated from God, some who had put their faith in him to be forgiven and brought into God's presence for forever. We are not mortal. Though we may die, the resurrection insists, we will live again. And that means that it is massively important for us to hear carefully what Jesus says and take our immortality seriously. And uh, the fact that it is resurrection is also massively um, important. Because uh, uh, most people believe in some kind of existence beyond death. But we saw last week, and you can see it all over the place in the, in the Gospels, and we will see it again today, it is not just a continued ghostly existence that Jesus has. It is a bodily existence. And that forces us to reevaluate again how we are to understand ourselves. This bodily existence that we enjoy now is not just a passing thing and, and, and our long-term existence is sort of spiritual and immaterial. No, this bodily existence that we enjoy now is an anticipation of our future bodily resurrection life in which we will not die. 
And therefore, in a, in a profound sense, the, the bodily things that we enjoy now are an anticipation of our future resurrection life. Indeed, says the Bible, Jesus' resurrection is just the first fruits of a general recreation of the whole of his physical recreation, the new heaven and the new earth, so that everything about this life that we enjoy now somehow finds a, a counterpart in God's new creation. To prove it, Jesus on occasion sat down and ate fish with them. So, real and solid and physical was his resurrection life. If Jesus is raised from the dead, it changes everything. And John knew that. And hence, his gospel is heading towards, has always been heading towards, the events of chapter 20 and 21. The, 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 um, the record of Jesus rising from the dead. This is the authentication that everything that Jesus has said and done up to now really, really is true. He wasn't just having a laugh that I wa- like I was at the beginning. He was really telling us the truth. Now, of course, an average person... Um, responds, I need evidence. John says, absolutely you do. You, you, to, make, to, to believe these kinds of claims, we all need solid evidence. His whole gospel, then, has been, has been trying to give us evidence and support for who Jesus is. I mentioned last week, John uses the word testimony 14 times. He uses a lot of of words in concepts, 7 or 14 times. And uh, the word testimony comes up 14 times. It's it's essential to him that his whole gospel is a testimony. Um, uh, Chapter 20, verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He has written this testimony that we may believe and that by believing have life. And we saw um, last week, we began to see how Jesus um, uh, how John began, begins slowly to unfold the solid evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus really was dead, he says, in chapter 19. I testify to this, says John. And Jesus, um, uh, uh, um, it slowly becomes clear in chapter 20, Jesus is alive again. Remember, you were here last week. They find an empty tomb. They're encouraged to investigate it. They're encouraged to ask questions. And finally, Jesus meets Mary and she recognises who he is. You see, John's acutely aware of something. We can't meet Jesus like that. We can't go to that empty tomb and have a look at it. Even if we knew what tomb it was, it wouldn't prove anything now, 2,000 years later. 
And the Bible's absolutely clear, Jesus ascended into heaven and he's not wandering around so that we can meet him like Mary did. So how can we have evidence enough, even if Mary could? Well, he tells his, uh, his last evidence story, which we're going to focus on this evening, from verses 24 to 29. I think to try to help us to get to a point where we, where we can say, no, I've got evidence enough for this. The first thing he wants to, uh, wants to hammer home to us is, it, is, is, is that if we had been there, the people who were there knew they had evidence which was impossible to refute. Verses 24 and 25. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the, the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not be believed. Thomas represents a long and honourable tradition which has um, um, more recently got called empiricism. Unless you can see it, touch it, test it, put it in a test tube, you shouldn't believe it. And um, uh, in one sense, that is absolutely reasonable. We don't find John saying Thomas was a foolish man who was rejected by God. Indeed, we find Jesus being very kind to Thomas. Verse 26. A week later, Jesus' disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. In other words, Jesus accepts Thomas's challenge to provide sufficient empirical evidence. And he provides it for Thomas. Christianity, as I said last week, and let, let me say it again, is based on solid truth. Solid, solid historical events that really happened. It is not just a nice fuzzy set of beliefs. It's not a moral code. It's not a set of speculations about the nature of God. It is rooted in historical claims. Os Guinness um, says in his book, Doubt, this stubborn insistence on truth is the only thing which lifts Christianity out of the common pool of completely personal, relativistic, subjective beliefs. If it is not true, you shouldn't follow it, says the Bible. If it is true, you must. Truth is vitally important. Notice though, even Thomas makes inferences beyond what he's actually seen. So he um, um, reaches out his hand, presumably, and puts it into Jesus' side, and, uh, and so on. But Thomas says, verse 28, My Lord and my God. Even Thomas, you see, can't actually see that Jesus is God. 
He has just recognised that, that this Jesus who is here, who has the marks of wounds of his crucifixion, he must be believed when he claims that he is God. Even Thomas had to believe things that he hadn't seen. And then Jesus extends it beyond that. Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Which is why I corrected you, Charlotte, because it's such an important verse. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. In other words, Jesus is saying, and John is saying to us, People generally are going to have to believe something they have not personally seen. That is not unreasonable. It is perfectly reasonable. The great theologian Augustine was reflecting on this and, um, and, and tells us in his, um, his, his confessions that he started to realise that he believed all kinds of things that he had not seen. But he believed that his mother was his mother. He believed and the same about his father. He, 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 he believed that uh, a variety of people that he knew lived in different, different addresses because they told him so. He believed that there was an emperor, though he had never, he had never seen him. He, and uh, he believed a thousand and one things in this world that he hadn't seen. Indeed, if he never believed anything he hadn't seen, he would be completely paralysed and unable to, uh, to function. Indeed, he would be the madman. Imagine someone saying, unless you give me the proof that you're my mother, I will not believe it. They would be considered to be paranoid because we all have to believe on the basis of reasonable evidence even if we have not seen everything. So says Jesus. That is how people from now on are going to have to come to believe in me. Is that evidence enough? Is that testimony enough? This 414 times John has used the word testimony. He thinks using that word of double completeness it is. Is it enough? You know, there, there are people in this world who say, well, actually, the, the claims of Jesus are so extraordinary that he was, the, he was the Son of God, and so on, that there is no amount of evidence that can ever be enough, logically, to prove it. But then that's self-defeating. That's just making a prior decision that you will never believe that anyone claims to be the Son of God. That doesn't work. There are other people who say, well, there may not be enough evidence to, to, uh, um, to do it. So you've just got to make a leap in the dark. You've just got to say, I'm going to, I'm going to believe that and I'm not going to worry about the evidence. Well, that is not what the Bible says. No, we, can, we, can, we, we should be making a reasonable response to the evidence laid before us. It's not a leap in the dark, says the Bible. It actually is a leap into the light as finally everything fits together. 
there are um, those who say, well, it just cannot be. I've told you before of the, the interaction I heard just recently between Rabbi Jonathan Sachs and uh, uh, Richard Dawkins. Sachs was telling how he had been talking to Sir Isaiah Berlin um, some years before, who was a philosopher here in Oxford, who had said to Jonathan Sachs, you must understand that when it comes to religion, I'm tone deaf. And uh, when Jonathan Sachs said that to Richard Dawkins, Richard Dawkins says, ah, you see, but I don't think there's any music to hear. It's an extraordinarily audacious leap of faith, that one. Isaiah Berlin was saying, I'm not a religious man, I just can't hear it, but I accept that there may be something out there, I'm just toned deaf. But Richard Dawkins was going beyond that, and he was saying, not only do I not hear it, I don't believe it exists. That is as much a leap of faith, or more of a leap of faith, I would say, than actually responding to the evidence. Christianity is based on solid historical evidence. No, we can't put our hands into Jesus' side. But, but the evidence there, the historical evidence, is strong. Oh, you say, but I still can believe. I still just think the weight of what I've got to believe is, is far beyond the evidence that there is. Perhaps that's why John records the little incident just before that. Let me read it to you. Verse 19. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them. Peace be with you, he said. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. It's interesting that he, as he, the risen Jesus, comes and meets them, he starts saying, Peace be with you. It may be, may be echoing back to what he was saying in John 14, where he said, my peace I give you, I do not give as the world gives. And there, it was explicitly in the context of the giving of the Holy Spirit. And so here, we find that he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Because Pentecost hasn't happened yet, where the Spirit was poured out on God's people, it looks like this is a sort of symbolic act in anticipation of that. He is, he is promising the Holy Spirit to these people and through it he is promising peace. We will find peace in our trust of Jesus actually only as the Holy Spirit settles in our hearts. There's evidence enough. I'm going to stop agonising about the uncertainties. I cannot be Thomas. I need to find peace which the Spirit gives. 
And then the Spirit does something else as well. If you forgive uh, someone else's sins, their sins are forgiven, he says in verse 23. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. I don't think Jesus is thereby conferring on them some sort of magical ability to forgive sins or not forgive sins. I think he is saying that now, as they go in his name, I am sending you out as the Father has sent me, so I send you, he says. As they go in his name, their witness, by the power of the Spirit, will confirm other people's eternal destiny. As they put their faith in Jesus and find forgiveness, so that forgiveness is settled and firm as they are welcomed into the church. And if they, as they hear and reject the message, their unforgiveness is settled and firm. I think that's what, it, that's, what, that's what Jesus is saying. So he's saying that the Spirit does two things. The Spirit that gives us peace and the Spirit empowers us to witness in a way that divides people between those who have found Christ and those who have not. Is there evidence enough? There absolutely is. Do not let anyone say that there is no historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Will that on its own give you peace? Will that on its own bring you to Christ? Well, no, I don't think it will. Somehow God, by his Spirit, has to settle that in our hearts so that we see it, we find forgiveness. We're welcomed in amongst God's people. And we are eternally secure. The truth about Jesus' resurrection, you see, changes everything. Absolutely everything. It revolutionises the way that we will live our lives. It revolutionises the way that we look at this life. It's the revolu- it revolutionises the way that we understand ourselves. And unlike that spaceship that didn't turn up, Jesus' resurrection happened. It is real. And by God's Spirit, you can be a person settled, peaceful, forgiven as you wait for the final day when all people rise and face Jesus.